0: And before we begin, Father, we we prayed earlier, your word is a lamp unto our feet. So we pray, Lord, that now your word would shine in our hearts, it would light our paths, it would guide our way. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we ask, Lord, that your word would do its work in us, that we might glorify you. Amen. Well, uh, we live in a culture that celebrates leadership. Uh, We celebrate leaders and we celebrate leadership. We love, you know, Steve Jobs uh, or Elon Musk, people that are trailblazers. We hear things like, everyone is a leader. And there are rows and rows of books on leadership in bookstores and on Amazon or wherever it is that you choose to browse. We have... TED Talks by Simon Sinek and Brené Brown. If Anyone's uh, seen any of those? Uh, The Power of Vulnerability, one of Brené Brown's talks, has 57 million views on YouTube. We have vision statements, strategy planning sessions, goal setting, you name it. We love vision because vision says something about our values and where we're going. Sometimes we're a person that likes to cast the vision Sometimes we're people that kind of want to be captured by the vision of someone else. Um, And maybe because we don't know exactly, but we'll get behind someone who's got a vision that, you know, captures our heart, whose mission, you know, resonates with us, maybe. So an interesting question is, you know, what vision or goal or mission has gripped your heart? What inspires you? Maybe more importantly, why does it inspire you? And I think in the church we have similar questions to ask ourselves, don't we? We have church and what we might call parachurch organisations that have their own mission statements and sets of values. Churches and charities that focus on different areas or people, and maybe sometimes that can be confusing. I'm not saying this to kind of uh, criticise mission statements or different areas areas of ministry. It's merely uh, to question. Uh, What are the values that are best going to serve the church globally and see the Christian gospel advance? What are the values that are best going to serve Christ first? And what values are going to serve your personal ministry? We've all been called into a personal area of ministry. and I know Gareth's word as well earlier about that. We've all been placed, wherever you are, God is with you in those circumstances to minister. So what vision is going to best serve you in that context. And maybe this is even more important because of the so-called decline of the church in Western Europe and in the United States as well. There's a sense, isn't there, that the church is maybe smaller than it was. It's less respected by the wider culture than it was, that it's seen as increasingly irrelevant and old-fashioned by the society it finds itself in. And so we might be tempted to seek a vision that either we think is gonna help the church grow again, or one that we subtly adopt because it makes our lives easier, it's less painful, or just tells us what we want to hear. Now, uh, we're in a series in which we're preaching through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are two books that are really uh, one book found roughly in the middle of the Old Testament. Uh, So to recap the story for us, Uh, we've looked at how God chose a people to be a nation uh, that would be his people and his nation. Uh, That's Israel. And God's intention is that Israel is to be a blessing to all the nations as they live in obedience to God and in relationship with him. But as is so common uh, throughout the Bible, they're not faithful to follow all that God has commanded. And instead they they kind of turn from God. They turn to worship other gods instead. And these are typically the gods of the culture that are around them. They don't treat one another as they're commanded to, but they cheat one another. They put themselves first. And this comes to a head, when, after hundreds of years of this rebellion, generation after generation against God, and refusing to hear God's calling to them to change their ways and turn back to him, God sends them into exile in Babylon, so a key text for us in seeing this is just Second Chronicles. Now, that Chronicles is a history of Israel. This is right at the end of Second Chronicles. This is like a summary statement, if you like, of uh, where Israel finds itself at the end of this long history. Verse 15: The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians, uh, and it says in verse 19, they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon, that is the uh, leader of the, the king of the Chaldeans, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him, and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Now, we pick up the story at the end of this exile. We see here why the exile happened. But after about 70 years, God brings back his people into the land of Israel. He still has compassion on them. He still wants to bless them. He's still their God. And that's how Ezra starts. And so throughout Ezra, we first saw... uh, Zerubbabel, uh, rebuild the temple. That was in Ezra 1-6. to Then Ezra came and brought uh, God's teaching, God's law. That was uh, the second half of Ezra. And then now uh, we find ourselves here with the story of Nehemiah. So before we dive in and read today's uh, passage uh, and see what it's saying to us, let's just think for a minute who this text might have been written to. Because we have an account in Ezra and Nehemiah of the basic rebuilding and the resurrection, if you like, of the people of God in Israel. And so these accounts that were written are going to have been read, aren't they? Basically by the generations of those that came after them. And for those who came after Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, their situation was a bit mixed. It was mixed because, yes, in the end, the temple gets rebuilt. We've seen that in Ezra. The walls get rebuilt, but they're basically smaller than they have been before. It's less impressive than it had been before. And the people are still under oppression from the largest sort of superpowers, if you like, the, the nations around them. So they're not a fully free people. And so with these larger political superpowers over them, there is the threat of intimidation and interference so they're kind of in a situation where it's better than it was because at least they're not in exile, but it's nothing like as amazing as the histories that they um, that we read in you know earlier on in the Old Testament through Moses and Joshua and so on and King David especially. So that generation, I think, had to answer the same questions that we have to: where do they find the motivation to keep building in their generation, and what vision do they have to guide their life of faith, and how do they resist the temptation? because of the opposition they face, to stop building or compromise. So we're going to look at today's passage. Today's passage is Ezra, uh, Sorry, Nehemiah 2, uh, starting at verse 11. So I encourage you to uh, get your Bibles out now. Um, last week we heard that Nehemiah, he starts off asking about how Israel's getting on. And uh, he's saddened. He's He's more than saddened, really. He's broken by what he hears, and he cries out to God. And as cupbearer to the king, he's, a very, he's in a very important position. He's kind of like a, a special advisor, you could say, or a prime minister to the king, possibly. And he has an opportunity to ask the king if he will let him go and help rebuild the walls, and he, uh, the king agrees. So that's where we're picking the story up. We're picking the story up as Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. So let's read the passage. Uh, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon's spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us, and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Okay, so um, I believe that as we look at this passage, there are as we kind of dig around in the passage and try and understand what's going on, there are treasures for us to discover. Um, and those treasures can help encourage us and instruct us. Uh, So bear with me we're going to spend a little bit of time in this passage specifically and try and draw out uh, three in fact what I'm going to call treasures in the passage and then we'll kind of think about how we respond to them at the end. Now I've divided the passage into three sections the first section is Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and embarks on a secret night mission to inspect the walls and that's basically uh, the first half of the passage that we read which is 11 here we go. Uh, to 16. Now, I think this bit is a bit strange. Um, I think it's odd because we've got one and a half verses on what Nehemiah said to the people to convince them to build. That's in verses 17 and 18. We have a one verse reply to these opponents who criticise and, and suggest that it's rebelling against the king to, to embark on this mission. But we've got five verses on this sort of secret night mission. Uh, I would want to know, you know, how did Nehemiah convince the people to do the work that he had on his heart? You know, what strategies did he use? We have books, don't we, like How to Win Friends and Influence People, and all we get is one verse. His mission gets five. And we're told in this section that he told no one twice, that he inspected the walls twice. Three times we're told that he went out in the night. Six specific gates or uh, springs or pools are named. You know, what's going on here? I think it's very strange. Well, if you read around, the, the commentators basically give you two options. The majority go for one view, but I was actually persuaded by uh, the alternative view. I'll give you both. The more popular view is it's about strategy. Um, he needed to see the situation and assess it. You know, what would be required before he then spoke to the people to start? Because it would be a disaster if he started something he couldn't finish, or he so stirred up the opponent's that you kind of, you know, in this turbulent political atmosphere, it all just went horribly wrong. Um, I mean, I think there's some merit in that, but I'm persuaded that it's mostly about Nehemiah seeing the devastation of the walls up close and personal. And the reason for that is because right in the middle of this verse, in this paragraph, sorry, in verse 13, it says that the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, its gates that had been destroyed by fire, Now, this phrase actually appears, uh, I think, a total of four times in chapters 1 and 2. It's already appeared two times before, in chapter 1, verse 3, and in chapter 2, verse 3. And here it is a third time. Uh, And we saw last week how Nehemiah is broken over the state of the walls when he's in faraway Persia. I think we can only imagine what it would have been like to see it up close and personal. He hadn't seen Jerusalem. He'd been in Persia the whole time to see the destroyed walls and see the people who are living there and yet still be committed to the rebuilding effort. In verse 14, it says, there was no animal under me uh, to pass. Um, Again, that seems to be indicating that the walls were so badly destroyed that he only could get so far. And actually, he couldn't even make a full circuit of the city. The walls were so bad at that point that he couldn't get through any further. If we think of, say, you know, The Ukraine right now, the images that we see on TV, the destruction of war, we might choose to do our bit if we choose to, give money or we might might want to house a refugee temporarily, but I think to go there and see the devastation up close and personal would be something else, I think we'd all agree, emotionally, psychologically, and I think for Nehemiah it would have been the same. Nehemiah, he could have directed help, couldn't he, from Persia? He could have sent money in his influential role, he could have sent other people, but he decides to go himself and see the destruction of the city himself. He becomes one of the people he's going to save and rescue. And So that's, I think, the first uh, treasure we have in this passage. Nehemiah doesn't help people at a distance, uh, but he, he, he helps them up close and personal. Now, once Nehemiah has seen these walls, he then speaks to the people, this is the second bit, and persuades them to rebuild. That's in verses 17 and 18. Uh, We'll read that again quickly. Um, Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build So they strengthen their hands for the good work. So it goes well, doesn't it? He speaks to them, and they're convinced, and they rise up, and they build. Uh, Now, how does Nehemiah appeal to them? How does he motivate them? There are two things. First of all, he's asking them to come out of the shame and the disgrace of judgment and embrace God's mercy. And secondly, the ground of this appeal, I think, is in the goodness of God that he says has been on him on his life okay so firstly he appeals to the people to come out of shame the shame and disgrace of judgment uh if we look at verse 17 it says come let us build the wall of jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision now it's interesting that it doesn't say you know so that we will have more security uh so that we'll have more strength to defend the city Uh, these are things of course that the wall would provide But he says that we may no longer suffer derision. The NIV and other translations often put no longer suffer disgrace. Nehemiah is concerned that as long as the walls are broken, they're in some sense still under shame and disgrace. Now, what is this shame and disgrace that he's talking about here? Is it that other cities are so much more beautiful and glorious than theirs? Was it that they were poor and they lacked military power? Again, I, I think that's possible. But if we just think for a minute, that phrase, the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, its gates have been destroyed by fire, which we, I said appear four times in Nehemiah 1-2. You know, very similar words appear in that passage in 2 Chronicles I read at the beginning. Um, let's look at that, verse 19. And they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire. So I think what we need to have in mind is that the destroyed walls and burnt uh, walls are in fact God's judgment on them as a people who despite God's mercy in sending them prophets again and again, they repeatedly rejected those prophets and so they were sent into exile. So the horror that Nehemiah sees is not just, I think, this the census destruction of the Babylonians because I think they, in a sense, are the instruments of God's ultimate purpose, which was to judge the people for breaking the covenant relationship they had with God. So the walls being broken down represents the judgment the people are still under. But Nehemiah, I think, knows something different. He, he knows, first of all, what the word says. And he says this, and Aaron picked this up last week in Nehemiah uh, chapter 1. There we go. Uh, verses 8 to 9. Remember the word that he says when he's praying, um, sort of repenting before God, and he hears how bad the situation is in Jerusalem. This is what he says. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. So whilst the walls are destroyed, the people are still in some sense under God's judgment. But Nehemiah knows that with God, his mercies and compassions are still there for his people and for his city, Jerusalem, if the people will just recommit themselves to God. He knows that God is compassionate and he will gather them and bless them if they repent and turn to him. And he knows this not just from what the scripture says, but because of the good hand that's been on him. Remember, if you think about it, Nehemiah has been unusually stirred, unusually emotional about the state of the walls in verse uh, uh, in chapter one. He was provided an opportunity as somebody in front of the king to ask for help and assistance and to say, can I go? And the king said yes. So God's shown signs of mercy. And he's encouraging them to put their trust and faith in the mercy of God in rebuilding the walls. Now, I think it's important. Important just to note here that, it, you know, there's a temptation, I think, in the church for us to say, we receive the mercy of God and we rest in it. And that's okay. We might say, you know, receive God's mercy into our hearts. But Nehemiah doesn't say, you know, God's mercy is for us, so God's going to rebuild the walls. Okay. But the idea is, is that as you receive the mercy of God and you walk in the truth of that grace and mercy that he's shown you, you build and God is with you. And so the city is being rebuilt. And so I think in that sense, it's a good metaphor actually for repentance. It's not just accepting God's forgiveness for us and his mercy towards us, but committing to live in a new way in response because of it. It reminds me of the words of Jesus when he encountered sinners. Like for example, in John 8, the woman caught in adultery, he said to her, neither do I condemn you, Now go and sin no more. So we don't earn or deserve the mercy that God shows us, nor did the people of Nehemiah's time. But we are asked to live and to walk in it as a response. And that's our way in a sense of answering and of responding to God's goodness to us. We turn from our sin and we seek instead godly character. So, okay, second treasure, I think, is uh, God wants to end the people's shame and disgrace by sending them Nehemiah. Okay, finally then, at the end of the passage, uh, after Nehemiah's convinced the people to rebuild, he faces some opposition. These three men, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they rise up, mock them, and hate them, and accuse them of rebelling against the king. You see that in verse uh, 19. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobi the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now, as Aaron said last week, I think very often, you know, as we step out in faith. on on some sort of faith adventure, whatever that might be, we can often, I think, be expected to be met with some sort of opposition. And very often, the opposition that we face will use ridicule and mocking, and it will accuse us of rebelling against the king, as we see here, or probably in our context, more the ruling philosophy, the way that our culture sees things. And that is the opposition, I think, that we often feel in the church, right? Sometimes we feel that we might be mocked. We are told maybe that we're rejecting values and beliefs and conventions that we should hold sacred like the rest of the culture. And I think we need to just realize we shouldn't be surprised by this, that being to some extent rejected by the world is part of what it is to be a Christian, And that's something I think Jesus taught, I think the apostles taught, and I think we see it as well here in Nehemiah. Now, how does he deal with this opposition? Well, in verse 20, we see that he says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah, I think, sees firstly that God is with him. And his people, and that God has promised them an inheritance which these opponents don't share. You have no right, no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. God's already shown, hasn't he, that he's sovereign over all kings and rulers in Nehemiah. Because we've seen the way Nehemiah comes from the king. Ezra himself also came from a king. And the people are first brought back by the decree of Cyrus, Uh, another Persian king. So why fear when God is the Lord of all the nations, he rules over all of the uh, rulers of those nations, and why worry about those who have no right or portion in the city they're called to build? Nehemiah knows that God's building a city and a nation that will ultimately be a light to all the nations, and will inherit the whole earth. Psalm 48, which is a psalm about the city of God, Mount Zion, it says that the city of our God will be established forever. And Nehemiah knows that God is going to give them an inheritance in this city. The future glory of Israel and her city, Jerusalem, is greater than any present threat that they might face. And so that, I think, is the third thing we see. Nehemiah is confident that his people have an inheritance in God's city. Okay, so... As we consider then how do we respond to these uh, things, we need to think about how the readers of Nehemiah uh, would have understood it in their context. A reminder, they would have been living in the partially rebuilt city of Jerusalem, still under some sort of foreign rule, various nations at various times. So they would have faced political intimidation, pressure to fit in with the ruling culture. I think they would have been encouraged by today's passage that. If God has shown them mercy through Nehemiah, God is still showing them mercy now. Nehemiah lived with them. He identified with them. He helped them as a man sent by God. God was with Nehemiah to do the work of removing the shame of their broken walls in order to restore them, and they, as the next generation, could continue that good work in their own time and moment in history. And secondly, Nehemiah was not intimidated by his opponents because he saw the God who was building his kingdom, in whom he and they have an inheritance. And this, I think, would have encouraged them to see that they too have that same inheritance. And therefore, they too could trust in the God who promises to be with them, even as they face opposition and pressure to compromise. So ultimately, as they see the God of mercy and hope, they have all the encouragement they need to do the good work that God has called them to do. And so they had to decide, you know, will they build and be faithful like previous generations? Will they live in the mercy and the grace of God and build for the inheritance of God's kingdom? Okay, so what about us? was a lot about Nehemiah and uh, the passage. What about us? A long time gap between what we've just read in Nehemiah and us. Well, we see, I think, that God has not sent a restorer like Nehemiah, But has sent us the Lord Jesus Christ. Raymond Brown says of Nehemiah that he leaves the opulence of palatial surroundings for a dispirited community in a dilapidated city he had never seen. But Jesus leaves the Father's side, he lays aside his glory and he takes human form in weakness, in humility so that he can live among us, be with us, and identify with us. Nehemiah doesn't see the problem from afar. He's up close and personal. He sees the walls. He lives with the community. He doesn't shy away from that challenge. And Jesus, too, lived, didn't he, among a people who were sinners, who misunderstood him, who misrepresented him. He entrusted himself to followers who had sinful hearts, weak hearts, corrupt hearts who didn't understand what he was doing or saying and who betrayed him at his most vulnerable hour. He sat under political and religious rule that was corrupt and self-serving though he himself lived perfectly in peace and love. And Jesus did this didn't he because he came to proclaim that God's kingdom had arrived and that God's mercy and compassion was there to be received. Nehemiah came to preach, in a sense, good news to a broken city under judgment. But Christ came to proclaim good news to a broken people under judgment. And our shame is not broken walls, but our broken lives, our broken relationships, our broken souls even, destroyed by our sin, our self-centeredness. But As we repent and turn to Christ... We come under God's grace and we sub- as we submit to him as Lord, as the one through whom we have the forgiveness of our sins, and as the one who sends us the Holy Spirit, we truly become the people of God. So as we live this story and see ourselves in it, we're encouraged to do the good work of building God's kingdom here, to tell others of God's grace and to love one another as God's family. And that, I think, is the kind of vision that's going to help us build well. Whether that's in your own personal situation, this specific church, or even the church globally. Well, we thought, didn't we, that Nehemiah faces down opposition by looking to the inheritance that he had as part of the people of God. So we too, I think, we have to look at the inheritance that we have and we will receive as those in Christ. When the world opposes us. It will ask us to bow the knee, to submit to its ways and its values. It will encourage us to seek money, success, reputation, popularity, pleasure, whatever your own vision of the good life is. And we certainly are told we mustn't speak out against those things or suggest those things are wrong in any way. But what did Jesus say when Pilate said to him, Aha! so you are a king. He replied, my kingdom is not of this world. So how do we uh, not cave to the pressure to compromise? In an increasingly hostile culture, I think we need to fix our minds on the inheritance and kingdom that we will receive. I think we need to rediscover our eternal hope Jesus came announcing a kingdom that had come, but it has not come in its fullness. Yes, we've seen Jesus. Yes, we've received the Holy Spirit. But that's just a a guarantee. It's just a down payment. It's just a small amount of what we will receive. So as we do the work of building God's church or God's city, we're here waiting for the fullness of it to be revealed from heaven when Jesus returns. And then and only then will we inherit the new creation, and the kingdom of God will fill all the earth, and God will live with us. Um, Revelation 21 uh, reads, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. For the former things have passed away. He goes on to say, "The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son." Brothers and sisters, um, we have an inheritance that is beyond anything we can imagine, and we will receive it and is waiting for us to be revealed from heaven. We must fix our eyes on that truth. And then we won't be intimidated by anything the world can throw at us. The world has no inheritance into eternity. So why would we listen to it when it contradicts that which we know we will receive when Jesus returns? And so we have to ask ourselves those same questions, don't we? Will we be faithful like the generations of Christians before us? I believe if we fix our eyes on the mercies of God in Christ and we seek the inheritance of his kingdom, we will. We're gonna respond um, with one more song uh, now. Um, And uh, I think then there's gonna be a bit about baptism, I don't know if Aaron's in here, you're doing it, Andy. Um, uh, Andy's gonna come up and and, and there's gonna be a bit sharing about the baptisms, but there will also be an opportunity to receive prayer. So I'd encourage you um, at the end of the service, you know, if, if this is just a truth you want to know more deeply, The truth that uh, there is mercy and compassion and forgiveness in Christ, but also that there is an eternal hope that we're living for. But it may be actually that it's in a very specific circumstance you're finding yourself in. And you need to realize this truth in that particular context. Uh, Or if there's any other reason that you want to receive prayer, we would love to pray for you. So please don't uh, turn away that opportunity. right, let's.